Thanks, Rashonda. Um, so yeah, this is uh, probably my third or fourth time to be joining you guys for worship in this capacity. So, so, so excited. We're probably one of the last times um, for a while. Um, like I shared a few weeks ago, Jordan, my wife, and I are fixing to move down to the Austin area to work with the church plant down in the heart of our new city and our new home, and we could not be more excited. If you want to talk more about that after service, I'd love to catch you outside and let you know all that God is doing. Um, but today, we're going to be in the book of Matthew real briefly. We're going to be jumping through um, the Gospels a little bit. You know that when I like to come, I like to test our Bible drill um, abilities, and so we're going to start in the book of Matthew. So as you turn there, would you just pray with me? Heavenly Father, we cannot be more grateful that you have delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of everlasting, the kingdom of light, and the kingdom of your son, Jesus. And this morning, as we examine and look at the life of Jesus, would you, by your spirit, fill us not only with the knowledge, but the ability to pursue a life of faithfulness and goodness and joy in the same way that Jesus lived out those things when he walked the earth. And so, Father, would you be with us this morning? Would you give me words, not of my own, um, but of your spirit to admonish us and to encourage us that we might walk more deeply and more like Jesus? We ask it all in his name this morning. Amen. For hundreds of years, uh, the followers of Jesus have recognized the desperation within our souls for deeper and for greater things. From the fall of Adam in the garden when he took the fruit of the tree that he was neither um, to enjoy or to eat from, all the way through the early days of the church into the 21st century, we have sought and searched for the things in the foremost of the deep and the great and for followers of Jesus, we know that this has been found only in the person of Jesus. And in order for us to pursue more deeply and to conform more readily to the greatness of the image of Jesus, the church over time has often prescribed a series of practices for believers and followers of the way of Jesus. Over the course of time, these practices have become to be known as disciplines. Whether they were few, whether they were innumerable, these disciplines were instructed for hundreds and hundreds of years to direct believers like you and like me to a life that reflects more readily that of Jesus and to make more room for the deep pursuit of him. For modern believers, we have often forgotten, lost, or chosen to set aside these disciplines um, for what is easier, what is an easier to swallow or an easier to endure form of spirituality. And my hope this morning is that as we examine the life of Jesus, that we would revitalize these practices for ourselves. And so I invite all of you to join me in that pursuit this morning. Um, but as we conform to the image of Jesus more readily, and as we pursue a life that's reflective of Jesus, um, as we work on these practices and these disciplines to walk in his way, we must first witness the life of Jesus. You see, if we are to receive life from the vine of Jesus, like he teaches in John chapter 15, then we need to have a lifestyle to back up that life. 
I don't know how many of you have had the chance to go to Central California or Grapevine or Fredericksburg here in Texas and go walk among the um, wineries or to just even see them from the road, but it's gorgeous. They spread for miles and miles and miles in every direction, but we wouldn't be able to see the beauty of those wineries if it were not for the trellis that upholds the vines that we see spread all out upon the acres of vineyard. And the same thing is true of our life. If we want the life that Jesus has to offer, we need a trellis to uphold the vine of our life. And that's what these disciplines do. They provide a lifestyle or a trellis to uphold our life as we pursue a life similar and reflective of Jesus. And so in light of this vine and trellis reality, in light of what it takes to live a life conformed to Jesus. Uh, Today we're going to do a couple of things. First, uh, we're going to examine a few passages. Like I said, get your Bible drill hats on. We're going to be all over the Gospels this morning. We're going to examine the life of Jesus um, and see what life he chose to lead to deepen his relationship with his Father. And then we're going to work through how we as modern 21st century believers can do the things that Jesus did. And so to begin this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And the first couple of chapters of Matthew, um, those that precede where we're going to land today, we've seen Jesus begin um, his earthly ministry. We've seen him approach his cousin John, John the baptizer, and request to be baptized in the Jordan River. And it's at that scene where we see the Father speak over his Son and the Spirit descend like a dove upon Jesus to affirm who he is and the role that he is going to have. And immediately after that, in the opening verses of chapter 4, we read this. And then Jesus was led up by the Spirit to go into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The discipline, the practice that we're going to chat about this morning is one referred to often by theologians is solitude. The practice of solitude. Jesus, believe it or not, was the master of this particular practice. Um, But for Jesus, it didn't begin with a desire to practice it. And I would imagine that that's true for all of us as well. It doesn't begin as this desire to practice discipline, to discipline our spirits to pursue the Father more, but rather as a spirit-led journey. Look again at our verses. And then Jesus was what? He was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Immediately after his confirmation of sonship, the Father speaking over him, the Spirit descending upon him, Jesus is taken into the wilderness, or some of your translations might say the desert, to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit of God, the Spirit that indwells us today, chose to take Jesus into a barren, empty place without any food for 40 days and 40 nights to prepare him for his temptation from the devil. I don't know about you, but to me, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. 
I wouldn't assume that the Spirit would lead Jesus into a barren, desolate, empty place, leaving him basically starving for 40 days, only to conclude that starvation, or near starvation, with a toe-to-toe battle with Satan himself. But when we look backwards a little bit, we can truly consider the implications and that it actually was very purposeful of the Spirit. What the Spirit's done is he's not taken Jesus to a place to waste away for 40 days, to become incredibly hungry, to have the skin just sticking to his bones, but rather he's taken Jesus to a place where his only fulfillment and his only satisfaction can be found in the Father himself, not nourished by food, but nourished by relationship with the Father, alone in the wilderness together with the Father. And I can't imagine for Jesus or for any of us a better way to prepare for confrontation with the devil and with temptation than to devote 40 days and 40 nights straight to our Heavenly Father to being guided by his spirit, to reveling in his beauty while in nature, reveling in his grace and his majesty. I can't imagine a better way to pursue a world full of, or to walk into a world full of temptation. This is exactly where the discipline and the practice of solitude comes from. It's disciplining ourselves and allowing the spirit to discipline us to be led into places of want and of desire in order to deepen our affections and deepen our devotion to the Father. Can you imagine how different our lives would look if every day or every couple of days we were nourished and satisfied by the Father before walking into a world of pain and a world of brokenness and a world of shorted paychecks and a world of wayward children and a world of sickness and a world of malnourishment and a world of brokenness. Can you imagine how differently it would be if we spent 40 days and 40 nights with the Father before walking into every broken piece of our world that we have to interact with every single day. For Jesus, he had the opportunity to. He was led by the Spirit. And my hope today is that we too would learn to be led by the Spirit into times and spaces of solitude. But like I said earlier, Jesus was the pro at solitude. All of us starting today are the greenhorns, the amateurs, the novices, the new guy, all right? And so what I'd like to do um, is that is to look and continue to examine the life of Jesus because this time in the desert was not the only time he sought solitude. Solitude for Jesus didn't look like 40 days and 40 nights in the desert every couple of months, um, but rather it was a regular occurrence for Jesus. And so I want to take a look at another passage, if you would, uh, turn to Luke chapter 6, and we'll see how Jesus demonstrates the practice and the discipline of solitude um, so that we, too, can begin this practice ourselves. 
Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. It says, In these days he went out, this is Jesus, on the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Now, in those days is that time during Jesus' ministry on earth and the genesis of his ministry when he's just begun to teach in the synagogues, when he was correcting the wayward teaching of the Pharisees, when he was instructing the people on Sabbath or on Shabbat, and when he was healing the broken and the sick and the destitute. It was in those days that he chose to go and seek the mountain for prayer, to go into solitude to be with his father. I know we live in Texas, and so this concept of a mountain is this really strange thing to us. Um, I remember my brother one time uh, describing Texas as a flat place with a couple of little bumps when you get down south. Jesus sought the mountain, this place where he could go, where there would be no other people. It was even in the midst of life, in the midst of his ministry. When time was short, when he was going from synagogue to town to teaching his disciples, back to the synagogue, back to town, when life was happening around Jesus, he chose to head to the place of solitude. He chose to go and to be with his father. Notice that Jesus didn't go to the crowded market, nor did he go to a a church to pursue his solitude. Instead, he pursued a place of solitude, away from the noise, from the people, from the distractions. One pastor put it this way, the busier And the more in demand and famous Jesus became, the more he withdrew to his quiet place to pray. One of the foundational actions of solitude for Jesus and for us is not withdrawing for the sake of withdrawing. It's not saying, I need to get away from people. Let me go hide away in my room or my workshop or in front of my TV for a few hours. But it's in order to pursue the Father well. Primarily, like Jesus, we're going to be doing this through prayer. And we just need to be willing to submit to the practice even in the middle of life. Jesus was teaching and discipling and correcting and living life. Yet, even when time was short, he chose to go and seek the Father in prayer. And so real quickly, let's, let's take a mini conversation, a mini sermon, if you will, on prayer. The purpose of our prayer and our time in prayer is to converse with God to actively seek after God. And when I say converse with God, I say that because prayer is not just a one-way conversation that's meant to make us feel better. This cultural Christianity that's invaded our churches says that we should pray, unload on this divine being who's up there somewhere, and then return to our daily lives. But that's not the point. It's to have this two-way conversation with God. It's a time to hand our burdens to God, to celebrate our joys with God, and to ask big things of God, just like we would of our spouse or of our best friend. 
but it's not just us speaking, but seeking and, and making a point of giving space to listen and to allow room for God to move and speak into our hearts. It's not a time to treat God like a cosmic vending machine when we put in our prayer quarter and put A6 and hope that our Cheetos fall out, uh, but to treat him like a loving father who cares, who wants to hear and wants to speak into our lives. Prayer is not in and of itself an end, but the beginning to worlds of possibilities and deepening affections for our maker that we cannot even begin to understand, but Jesus did. And so he sought solitude to converse with his father. But above all, when we're coming to our father in solitude and in prayer, it's an opportunity to ask those big things of God, to hear from him. In Luke 6, we see prayer precedes Jesus' ability to choose whom he's going to name as his apostles. Up to this point in his ministry, the disciples of Jesus are just the massive crowds of 50 to a couple hundred people that are just hopelessly following Jesus around, hoping to be healed, to be taught by him, to learn what it means that the kingdom of heaven is coming near. But when it came time to pull 12 young men out of the crowd, Jesus sought solitude. He sought the Father so that he could rest with his Father and that he could seek clarity of who to choose. And so let me ask you this. How often before the big things in life, whether we know they're coming or not, are we seeking the Father in prayer? How often are we making space for the Spirit to speak into the decisions of life before we just go off and make them. I'm type A, if you hadn't noticed. I like clean lines. I like spreadsheets. I like things that just make sense. I like to plan. I like to have due dates. I was an excellent student if I studied, all right? Because I, I just like for things to make sense and on my timeline. One of the things that I've had to learn through the practice of solitude is that my timeline and the Father's timeline are completely different. That God doesn't look at my spreadsheet and then tell me how to act. The last two years have been interesting for my wife Jordan and I as we've thought the Lord was calling us to go overseas and now he's called us down to Austin. We had a timeline where we thought we were going to be sent to the United Kingdom. And God said, no, I'm going to invade this space. I'm going to use a world unraveling pandemic to teach and to train you how to love people well. So that I can send you into a community that is hurting and broken that you don't even know about yet. This is what solitude and what prayer allows us to do. It brings God into his rightful place in the picture and the story of our lives. But enough about me. Let's get back to Jesus. Uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Jesus is intentionally seeking the Father before his big decisions. He goes to the Father before he goes to do his work in the world. And in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is using his time of prayer and solitude to rest and to hear from the Father. We know that prayer is a two-way conversation, but in Mark chapter 1, we see Jesus live out this reality. Again, Jesus has spent the whole day teaching 
and healing the sick and casting out demons in the local towns and neighborhoods that he's been in. And it says that after spending the day healing the sick in the villages, Jesus rose early in the morning while it was still dark. And he departed and he went out to a desolate place and he prayed. The first priority of Jesus after a day full of healing was to pursue the wilderness or the desolate place or somewhere, the place where he could seek solitude, where his soul could rest in the Father through prayer. We live in a day and an age uh, where our bodies are tired. We tax our bodies to their limit. We live in a society where working 60 hours just isn't enough anymore to the point where some companies are pushing for 70 and 80 hours or where we ourselves are pushing our bodies to the limit. Fun little fact for everyone, before the light bulb was invented by Thomas Edison, the average American slept 11 hours a night. 11 hours a night. I'm lucky if I get six now between devices and phone calls and conversations and Netflix and whatever show that me and the missus have chosen to binge because our new favorite character is coming back in the new season and we have to catch up so that we can know what's happening because we're way too many seasons behind. For the last 150 years, we've gone from 11 hours to six to five and in some careers even four. We've taxed our bodies to the absolute limit to which they can function. This isn't a sermon about how we need to sleep more even though we do and how we need to be on our devices less even though we do, but it's a sermon about seeking rest and solitude because when our bodies are still maxed out by the requirements of life and kids and work and whatever else comes in, we can still find rest for our souls. And that's what Jesus is seeking in Mark chapter 1. And it's after this, after this time with the Father to seek rest and to have a conversation with him, the disciples actually come to Jesus and they say, where have you been? We've been looking everywhere for you. You just disappeared. We were all asleep. We were trying to get our 11 hours and we woke up and you were gone, Jesus. It was still dark and we were fumbling around because we didn't know where you had gone. And in verse 38, Jesus says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. He's been healing. He's been teaching in this town. By logic, it would make sense that Jesus would stay and continue his ministry, but in solitude and in prayer with the Father, he's learned that God has called him somewhere else. The Father has given him clarity and purpose to be prepared for what is next, to move on to the next town, even though ministry is going well, or for us because work is going well, or because the homestead has finally been finished, or because the kids are about to go off to college, or because they just started to make friends at school, or fill in the blank. Our time of solitude will give us clarity to what is next, to our purpose, to what God is calling us to. But these three examples of 
the desert and the mountain and the dark of the night time of solitude are not the only ones that we see evident in the scriptures. In Luke's account, to go back to the book of Luke, of the life of Jesus, we can count at least nine instances of Jesus retreating to a desolate or a wilderness or a, a, a solitude space. But even Luke Dr. Luke, whose account of Jesus is the most thorough of any of the gospel writers, has this to say in Luke 5.16. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Or as the Christian Standard Version reads, he would often withdraw to desert places and pray. Luke, the most deeply accounting gospel writer whose biography of Jesus would go on to be a New York Times bestseller because of how detailed and wonderful it is. He just had to throw up his hands and say, you know what? Jesus did this a lot, and I just can't even account for every single time because he was really good at doing it in the middle of the night when all of his disciples were asleep, and even they don't know sometimes if he was gone or not to be in the place of solitude. For Jesus, thanks to Luke, we know that for Jesus, Solitude was not a one-time quick prayer meeting with God. For Jesus to pursue solitude was a lifestyle, one that preceded great miracles, one that followed taxing days, and one that gave him clarity for mission and ministry in a way that he would have never had without it. It was so ingrained in the habits of Jesus that the gospel writers just had to eventually summarize it. They had to throw up their hands. And if we, too, want a life that is marked by miraculous things happening, by deep understanding of what the Father has called us to, and for significant needed rest for our souls, if we want a life marked by spiritual growth that reflects Jesus, then we too need to have the lifestyle reflective of Jesus. We don't get the vine and the fruit without the trellis holding it off the ground. And so for us, for modern 21st century followers and disciples of Jesus, solitude looks a little bit different than it did for Jesus, but not, not drastically. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time together this morning is begin to talk what can our practice of the discipline of solitude begin to look like. And in the same way that Jesus was led into the wilderness to pursue a place of solitude, we too have to identify a place where the Spirit can lead us on a regular basis to go and seek this in our lives. The Greek word uh, for the desolate place or for wilderness is the word eremos. Say that with me, eremos. One more time. Thank you. And it means a lot of different things. It can mean desert. It can mean desolate place. It can mean solitary place. Or one of my favorites, it can mean a quiet place. I spent the last four years of my life on a college campus just outside of Dallas. The last year, I lived with seven 20-year-olds, and then I moved to 30 acres in a tiny house with the love of my life. I understand what a quiet place is. And to seek that regularly is important for our souls. And so you see, the idea of solitude is twofold with that word, Aramos. All right, it is both lonely 
it is silent. It is lonely, and it is silent. And by lonely, I don't mean it's this heartbreaking place. I don't mean it's February 15th, and someone just broke up with you over Valentine's dinner, okay? I mean that it is a place where we can be alone with ourselves and alone with God, a place that is uninterruptible and quiet. Here's an important note. Solitude is not the same as isolation. Solitude and isolation are two completely different ideas. Solitude by nature is engagement with God. It is finding our ultimate satisfaction in him, finding our clarity, our joy, our rest in his love. And isolation is an escape to things of earth, to those fillers, those time eaters. It's finding emptiness, and the insufficiency of the things of earth. Solitude is active. Isolation is passive. Solitude opens us to the things of God and to our Savior himself. Isolation makes us vulnerable to the enemy. To seek solitude well, we need to actively pursue a time and a place for it. To practice solitude in the 21st century means to avoid isolation in those earthly fillers. And so the first step for us to practice solitude is to discover that adoremos for ourselves. And adoremos, just to make sure we're all on the same page here, that quiet, lonely place, um, it's not a few things. It is not a room with a TV or a tiny child or anything else that might distract us. We are by nature, since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, creatures seeking after distraction. The author of Genesis says that Eve saw that the fruit was uh, beautiful to the eyes, that it was good for the belly, and that it would make one wise. Beauty intellect and satisfaction are all the things that are going to distract us and we need to make sure that they are away from us when we seek solitude um, solitude can also not happen in a shared space all right we can't do it at a coffee shop as much as we would like to and we cannot do it in certain parts of our home if someone's going to come walking and traipsing through the room it is not a good place for solitude jesus went to the desert and he went to the mountain I don't know about you, but I don't want to find myself in either of those spaces anytime soon, and neither do your small children or your spouse, okay? We need to find places where we cannot be interrupted. And it's also solitude, not a space within about a thousand miles of our phone. To practice solitude well, to remove distraction well, we have to keep that device out of the room, whether it's a cell phone or a home phone or an eye device or a computer we have to keep it away because there's nothing like having a moment with God where you're bringing your joys and your big asks to him and then you hear a ding and it's all forgotten and we go and we pursue the ding because that's what we've trained our bodies to do our ramos is however it's a bedroom maybe where no one uses or is empty for long stretches of the day it's a place where we can find time to be free from distraction or interruption. 
Or maybe it's a place outdoors. Maybe you do enjoy deserts or mountains and you know where one is and you can go there regularly. Props to you, okay? Uh, But it's a place where we can safely and regularly get to. Jesus himself uh, chose outdoors to engage with God. Uh, I think part of that is because he lived in the first century and AC wasn't a thing yet. And so he chose to be outside where there was a breeze rather than stuck in a building. But I also think it's because Jesus recognized that the beauty of creation helped him become closer to his father. And maybe to find that space in our homes, maybe it's just a closet one that we can empty out every once in a while. When I lived at DBU that last year with those seven guys, we we saw the need in all of our lives to pursue the practice of solitude. I lived with this one guy, his name was Pierce. He was a sophomore in college. He was this tall, lanky guy. He was a sports management major who had no idea what he wanted to do with his life, and all he wanted was clarity. And so he decided to pursue a life of solitude. And there would be a lot of times when we couldn't find Pierce in our house. It was a two-story, four-bedroom house that all of us shared on DBU's campus. And we couldn't find Pierce often. Um, Pierce was hard to displace, but we wound up doing it. And come to find out, Pierce was so invested in his practice of solitude that he would tuck his phone away under the bed in his room, and then he would go to the other end of the house to hide in a utility closet with our vacuum because he knew none of us knew how to use a vacuum, so we weren't going to come looking for it. And he, for 30, 40, an hour, two hours, would just pursue the Lord greatly. This 19-year-old kid who had no idea what he was going to do, who is now about to become a youth pastor at a church who desperately needs one in a suburb of Dallas because he realized that solitude helped him to pursue the clarity and rest that he wasn't getting anywhere else in his life. And because he was able to find that place and develop the habit and the practice He's now pursuing what God has for him. And all of us can be a pierce if we start with this one step of identifying that place where we're not going to be found. Matthew chapter 6 is Jesus' treatise on prayer. It's where he gives us his example prayer, our Father who art in heaven. We all know the rest of it. And before that, Jesus talks about how we need to go and lock ourselves in the closet. And then there's a lot in that one simple statement, basically said Jesus, Jesus was saying, hey, go to that one room in your house that you can actually lock and hide away from when you pursue prayer with your Father. And the truth is same, and it's the same for our practice of solitude. But in addition to that desolate, quiet place as we practice solitude, we also have to find a regular, consistent time. A regular, consistent time time has to be both of those things. For Jesus, the practice of solitude was regular, although it may not have been daily. For us, I would encourage all of us that we need to start pursuing solitude about two or three times a week so that we can grow that into a deeper, more regular practice. But it's not going to happen this next week. It's going to take months, and it might even in some cases take years for us to develop a healthy practice of solitude. 
This regular time needs to be put in our calendars, whether you keep digital or you keep paper. This needs to be an uninterruptible part of our days. All right, solitude needs to be in there so that your spouse and your kids knows that you're basically in a meeting that cannot be interrupted. If we don't put it in our calendars or if we don't write down and commit to that time, we're going to forget. We're going to push it off. We're going to say, oh, I don't need to do it today. Hey, I'll do it tomorrow. And all the procrastinators in the room said, amen. Okay, and then tomorrow comes and we go, ah, I don't need to do it today. I'll do it tomorrow again. And it snowballs into losing the practice in its entirety. We need to pick a time. We need to commit to it. And we need to stick to it. This may be um, in addition to our regular Bible reading. One of the best ways to develop a habit, psychologists will tell us, is to attach that habit to a habit we already have. I have a habit of drinking a lot of coffee on a regular basis, most of which before 8 a.m. And so for me to develop a practice of solitude, I had to reward myself with coffee. I would have to go and do parts of my morning and then seek solitude and then allow myself to drink my first cup of coffee. Some of my prayers probably don't make any sense, but the Lord understands the grumbling and moaning of my heart before my caffeine pick me up, all right? But we need to develop these habits. We need to define the time, and we sometimes need to pair them with the spiritual or unspiritual habits that we already have. And for us to find a time of silence, it may mean that we need to wake up a few more minutes early every morning. Now I know what you're thinking, BJ, you just told me that I should be sleeping 11 hours a night and now you want me to wake up earlier? It's up for you to decide. But we might need to wake up a little bit earlier. Jesus sought the solitary place in the wee hours of the morning while it was still dark. For some of us, we might just need to stay up later. It might mean putting the kids to sleep first and then saying, it has been a long, taxing, hard, tiring day. How about I go and pursue time with my father? There's a lot of ways to make that decision in the practice handout for the week, which you may have already gotten by email or which will be on the church's website this coming week. You'll be able to find some more details on how to pursue this particular practice. All in all, as we pursue solitude, we have to give ourselves about 30 minutes in this space and in this time where we can do a few things. First and foremost, it should be a space for prayer. As we seek solitude, we should seek prayer and conversation with our Father. We should be praying through our emotions. We need to pray in regards to our anxiety and our frustration and our joy and our disappointment. And when I began to do that, to bring my anxiety to the Lord, my anger to the Lord in my own practice of solitude, it was only then that I began to realize and to learn and to gain clarity on where those emotions began, on how to fight back against my tendency toward anger, to rely more heartily on the Lord instead of the ways that I could do things to relieve my anxiety. It was only then that I could rest in the grace and the kindness of my Savior. And as we pray, we can pray for clarity, asking God to help us pursue those things that he would have for us in our lives. And besides prayer, and after this we'll be done, besides prayer, we need to fill our space of solitude often with silence. With silence. We need to learn to hear in our hearts 
what the Lord has for us, to hear his voice and to learn to feel the movement of his spirit through our hearts and through our own spirits. Silence is a powerful tool for believers in Jesus in a world of noise and mess and constant dings, dongs, and interruptions on a regular basis. To simply sit and to attune our hearts to God, maybe once, twice, three times a week, to capture our thoughts and turn them back toward the Lord for his grace and kindness, to repair our brokenness, only then can we begin to see turning points in our spiritual formation. And this is why the early church fathers prescribed a lifestyle that was reflective of Jesus. Because it's only when we do the things that Jesus did that we see our heart begin to follow and be transformed into the way that Jesus had. Solitude is not easy. Silence is really, really hard. Okay, you can ask Jordan after service. I don't do good with silence. I have a tendency to fill it sometimes with noises because I'm a weirdo, sometimes with just talking her ear off because I don't know what else to do, or sometimes I just begin tapping things or snapping my fingers because silence is hard. See, it's a little hard. Everyone was just like, PJ, when are you going to start talking again, okay? Silence is difficult, but when we can pursue silence and we can go to the desert or to the mountain to meet with the Lord, we can begin to form ourselves more readily to him. And so as Roger and the rest of the team come up, I want to say this in conclusion. To practice the lifestyle of Jesus means nothing. It means nothing without first having the life that he can grant to us. To practice spiritual discipline without the spirit within us is vanity upon vanity. It's dressing up a tomb. It is looking good to your fellow Christian friends. That's all it is. So this morning, as we've been talking about the lifestyle and the life of Jesus, if that's something that you're just like, I don't think I've ever heard about Jesus wanting relationship with people and with his father. I'd love to, to chat after service about what Jesus can look like and how we can invite Jesus into those spaces in your life. And so as we prepare to pray, um, I want to do one thing. It's probably going to make us a little bit uncomfortable, and that's okay because I'm not going to see you all for a while, and so I don't mind making you uncomfortable. Um, as you close your Bibles and as you close your eyes and bow your heads um, to pray together, before I invite the Lord to conclude our time, I want you to do a couple of things with your eyes closed and your head bowed. I want you to consider a place. I want you to imagine the floor plan of your home, or maybe the property that you live in, or maybe a space in your city or your town that you know a lot of people aren't at. I want you to imagine that. And I want you to run through your head all the people in your household, where they tend to be in that space during the day. The kids running through in the morning expecting breakfast or coffee, if they're anything like the children in our family. 
Maybe it's them asking you to make their lunch or make sure they have money in their account at school to get lunch. Or maybe it's your husband coming through because he's in a hurry to get to work because he forgot this, that, and half of the other this morning. Or maybe it's your wife and her just trying to get through her morning routine so she can get ready for work. Imagine where they are in the morning and around noontime and in the evening as the kids come home and you head to sports or after-school activities or as you're dragging yourself in the door after work. Where are they in your house? Over the course of the schedule in your mind, is there a gap where it's just you? Maybe it's you and the TV, and it's been you and the TV for a long time, and maybe starting this week to practice solitude, it doesn't need to be you and the TV anymore. Think about that space and that time. Then your head, begin to make a mental list. What are some of the things in solitude you could begin to pray through? Maybe there's that big emotion that you tend to push down every single day when you wake up. Maybe you're just angry. Maybe there's something inside of you that's broken and you know it, but you can't fix it. Maybe you just need to take that emotion to God, to pray through where it's coming from, to let his grace and his kindness reveal to you. You don't have to be angry. You don't have to be anxious anymore that you don't have to be afraid of that thing or to know that that thing or that person you're afraid of, you can get away from it. You can run to God and run to safety with his people. Or maybe there's that big financial burden coming up. Maybe you're trying to save and it's just not working out. Or maybe you know a kid needs something and you're just worried that you as a parent aren't gonna be able to provide for it. Or maybe you're an empty nester you're just bored, and you don't know what to do with that boredom. These are the emotions, the things we can bring to God to ask for his grace and his kindness and solitude. That we can ask these big things of God to provide, to show his kindness and his grace to us. And so, Father, as we pursue a life that is reflective of Jesus, would we be prepared to make the sacrifices and to create the spaces necessary to pursue him and to pursue you. Father, it is in your goodness and your grace that we have life and have it abundantly. And would we in that abundance turn back some of our time and some of our spaces to you to worship you, to know you, to love you, to be willing to have those hard conversations about all the terrible things that we perceive happening in our lives? Will we also be quick to lift up that which is good and to celebrate with you what you have given us? Father, would you endow us all the more with your spirit this week as we pursue a life marked by Jesus? Father, would you in your grace and your kindness equip us with these things in the coming weeks? And it's in the wonderful Son, in the name of your Son we ask it.